Taken too big of a rip to start wow. with. Oh my god. I'm like iron lungs over yeah. here. Writing a, a check that that my weak as asthmatic lungs can't cash. I was hoping to go originally this and a blunt mode for this episode. Yeah. You know, I've smoked bong on the show. I've smoked a bowl on the show. You're lighting up a joint on the show. I don't know if I've ever actually smoked a joint on the show or not. But I was hoping to go blunt mode because that's been one of my kind of quarantine projects. You know, some people learn to bake. I just learn how to get baked in different ways. And I was like, I love blunts, but I'm obviously not around people right now. But just generally, mm -hmm. not often around a lot of blunt smokers. I used to be used to be friends with with some heavy duty blunt smokers and that was a fun time in my life, but not anymore. So I was like I want to learn how to roll blunts even though I don't really know how to roll joints and I use cones. <laughs> my secret shame and admission. Um, that was a a low key quarantine project of mine and I guess uh you know, I guess it worked out all right. Yeah, I can do it now. Like, I can do it okay, but um, blunts are so much more in the lips, <laughs> and my fingers are sometimes not very nimble, so it's uh, blunts can be a little bit easier. But I find that it really varies from brand to brand. Like, I kind of got swishers down pretty well. Phillies are easy because they're just, like, basically cigars, and you have a lot of paper, Backwoods are just fucked up and gnarly and evil, and they're, like, impossible. Um, and I was just trying black and mild, but those are just, like, too small. 
I feel like. Um, I don't like black and wilds because they have the cone, they have the little holder and I always want it to fit back in the holder and it never does, you know? Yeah, I know. I was like digging tobacco out of the tip so I could put it back in, but it was just like limply hanging out of it. And then the whole thing fell apart and I was like, well, okay, I guess I'm not going blunt mode for this episode. So we're on the bong per usual. Um, Anyways, just a little update on my weed smoking habits because, you know, it's Hotbox mm-hmm. the Cinema. Welcome. Officially. We're doing like Zsa Zsa and Mountains Made Apart, dropping the opening credits like 30 minutes in. Like Jean-Luc mm-hmm. Godard and Hail Mary, 30 minutes in. Or, you know, it's like uh, Inception, the movie's over and then you see the title of the movie. Wow. And you're like, whoa, I finally know what movie I was watching after all this time. This movie was so puzzling to me because I didn't know what it was called. Yeah, my mind is blown right now. Inception? That's what it's called? Damn. That's a good title. Deception. Because it's the mystery's over. It's it's we figured it out. We found out the name of the movie. Yeah, the biggest trick that Christopher Nolan ever pulled was (laughs) <laughs> just convincing you there was something happening for two hours. That is always. I do love Inception, though. That is always funny to me when movies have the trail the the title at the end because it makes it feel a little bit like a trailer. Like I remember, like Gravity, like she lands on Earth, she looks up into the sky, and then it's like boom, Gravity, and it's just like this. Just you're just advertising yourself. I already know that it's called Gravity. Why is is that like the the moral of the movie is that it's like gravity? Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't need to know the title because you already bought the ticket. You already told the person, the high schooler, what the name was, you know. But I guess it's uh, for whenever you're writing up your tweet review in your seat right after the movie, you have the title right there spelled correctly. Yeah. In all caps, 2020. I just knocked my mic. I'm I'm sorry. I promised that I well, just before we were talking about all of my fucking microphone audio issues, and I've had this like horrible bouncing noise that sounds like a water bottle for multiple episodes. And I thought I finally fixed it and got the mic secured, but then I just fucking enthusiastically, out of gesticulation, knocked the microphone. Yeah, um, it's good. When do you think though? Whenever, whenever anyone in the world sees Tenet, when do you think the word Tenet is going to be on screen? I think that Tenet is going to be ten minutes and ten seconds into the movie, wow. or it's going to be in keeping with some of the conspiracy theories around the movie. It's going to be nine minutes and eleven oh. seconds into the movie. Title drop. I think it's going to be like at the beginning but it's gonna be um like starts on a black screen natural sound comes in from the scene you're about to see there's just like a dude walking or something like that like something very mundane but obviously building up to something big and then i think it's gonna go from it's gonna keep the sound the whole time but then it's gonna have like the footage then black screen with the title already on it or with whatever production credit already on it back to the footage back to black screen with the next production credit on it i think it's gonna be like that kind of a Harsh cuts, but natural sound the whole way through. And then this just kind of like droning Hans Zimmer tone as Robert yeah. Pattinson is like trying on suits, I think. In his, in his British accent, he says, Tenet. <laughs> Are you That's the it. new Tenet? 
10 down what's the address 10 downing street uh, I think that my conspiracy theory about Tana is that it's actually a reconciliation with Christopher Nolan's um, third brother or second brother, the third Nolan brother, uh, not Jonathan, his screenwriter compatriot, but his hitman brother, who I don't remember the name of, but he's wanted for murder. It seems in multiple countries, it seems like he's less maybe of an actual hitman and more of a just like serial killer who like wants to be a hitman. Um, but it seems like they've spent a good deal of money to keep a lot of his exploits out of the papers. And I think that Christopher Nolan is with Tenet saying, come home, brother, come stop killing, put your guns away. It's like that room 237 documentary thing about like one of the meanings of the shining being that it's admitting that he faked the moon landing Stanley Kubrick did you ever saw room 237 right it's admitting that Christopher Nolan was uh involved in 9-11 probably um I mean of all the filmmakers who would be involved in that kind of operation it checks out I think he is pretty cold he seems like someone who could kill a, a large amount of people. I don't want to get sued by Warner Brothers, but I do think that um, if anybody would be involved in helping the United States government engineer some kind of cinematic terrorist spectacle, it would probably be Christopher Nolan. Do you think that's why insomnia came out a year after 9-11 is because he just he couldn't sleep with his filthy conscience? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's totally it. Um, and and then you get the Batman movies, the biggest psyop of all. And it's just, uh, I bet if I rewatched them, I would see the total admission of guilt all over the pages of those, the pages of those movies, the frames of those movies. Frames are the pages of a movie. Deep shit right there. That's more a, that's more a Zack Snyder Watchmen theory than a Christopher Nolan batman theory but i mean what is batman other than just uh like a crime and punishment style outstanding citizen who can commit violence because he has morals you know because because he's yeah because he's rich anyways i have batman tenet theatrical you know tenet is obviously um delayed in theaters but showing in our heads rent free because we cannot stop talking about it yeah i mean it's kind of like does the movie even exist at this point maybe it's just a few promotional images and just the conversation around the movie is tenant that would be the ultimate puzzle box movie i think a movie that's just pure discourse and that doesn't actually exist and is never seen it's oh. it's sort of brilliant this is the new uh like cloverfield halo 2 lost arg you know is just posting about Tenet. All of those kinds of games, like Cloverfield and stuff, they never they could never live up to the hype of, of the campaign. And Tenet is just having this endless pr- promotional campaign, which is now bound up in real-life news with the pandemic and stuff. And so it's just, even though people are like, oh, it's, it's going to lose all this money for Warner Brothers, it is getting all this free promotion. And it's yeah. never going to live up to that. So I think at this point, just burn the movie and just keep just like delaying it forever and ever and ever. And it will just only exist in our minds and Tenet will only be what we want it to be and what we project upon it. 
I was talking with a friend about the other side of the wind and how that movie is kind of weird because shouldn't exist. Well, it's, you know, it's a thing that Orson, Orson Welles never finished and it's weird because Peter Bogdanovich plays this guy who makes a younger generation understand uh, like an older director's work and in the movie Peter Bogdanovich is that character but also was that character Orson Welles in real life. Um, but then in, in real life is the person who brings Orson Welles movie that he never finished to completion. So he is also further changing the narrative about Ors- Ors- Orson Welles in the future, um, past this like period in the movie. Anyway, I was talking about that with a friend and he was like, maybe they should have just released all the footage and let people edit together their own version of other side of the wind. I feel like they should do that with Tenet. Yeah. I think that I think the same thing, like, uh, just, I think because Christopher Nolan is so fetishistic about the whole theatrical release thing, I think that the only way he's ever going to get over that is if he just goes in the complete opposite direction and totally absolves himself of the work and just releases it to the people. He would be a hero if he did that. And if he just gave tenant to us and let us make our own tenant, made it a true mind game film, rest in peace to Thomas Elsasser, smoke one. For Thomas Alsasser. The real mystery is uh, you have to search through the film footage and find out what Tenet really is. It's like that game Her Story. And uh, what's the other game? I can't remember the other game made by Sam Barlow that had like the guy from Upgrade and stuff in it. Like last year or two years ago. I don't know, but it's like that type of like database of video where you're just searching out terms and solving a mystery by watching people's webcams. Don't know the name of that game, but I know the name of that man, Logan Marshall Green. You know, University of Tennessee graduate, just like us, actually. Wow. We should have him on Hotbox the Cinema, talk about Upgrade, talk about the OC. I would have a fun time. Dream guest, up there with Josh Trank. Oh, the game is telling lies. This is uh, okay. not what the episode's about at all, but... Eating sugar, telling lies. Uh, yeah, we've gotten very. This is just like the the opening, like Mark Marin, just in the garage, sort of airing our grievances, fading into the middle of a conversation. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to do it. You can't always get right to the heart of the stuff. You gotta yeah. warm up a little bit. And what better way, honestly, to introduce? Uh, the topic, which is the work of Kelly Reichardt, but specifically around First Cow, her new movie. Yeah. Again, another movie, I think, I mean, it is, you know, a little bit of a segue because we were talking about the theatrical delay of Tenet and all of that and Nolan's insistence on his work being seen theatrically. And we've had all of these episodes now about movies that have been impacted (laughs) by COVID-19. You know, we talked about The Hunt now two episodes ago, Bloodshot, and First Cow was another movie that was impacted by the pandemic. And it's, in fact, the last movie that I saw theatrically. You might say it's one of the first cows put out to pasture. Wow. Um, Yeah, with the the digital theatrical release. But it was one of the first ones that that didn't get a wide theatrical release. Uh, and then was put out for most people uh, primarily on digital platforms. I guess press screenings, like I read a review in like the local Alt Weekly and, and the reviewer was talking about it being the last press screening he saw in a the theater or the last movie he saw in a the theater altogether actually. 
first cow, last movie. Um, yeah, it had been at festivals, I think, in the fall of 2019, and was set to yeah, was set to come out somewhat wide. Um, it played in New York and I think in LA and the big the big markets. Um, but then it was sort of unfortunately shuffled off to VOD because of all the things that have happened. And, um, you know, I'm glad that people are able to see it now because I think it's a really special little movie mm -hmm. about friendship and uh, the birth of capitalism and yeah. male, male bonding and, um, among other things. I honestly, when I was like excited about it, but then the longer it went on, the more I heard about it, I was like, it cannot be this good. And I watched it in the first 10 minutes, I was pretty skeptical, but then I eventually came around to it because yeah. I feel like it has, has a lot a lot going on in it. Uh, specifically, you talk about the birth of capitalism. And when you first told me that after you saw it in a press screening, I was like, that is some clickbait if I've ever heard it some true prime clickbait USDA yep. certified clickbait yes. but but it kind of is you know yeah it's totally. about it's about uh, you know the first cow is a commodity and um, it's it, but it does it in a, in a way that I think mm -hmm. in keeping with her work you know it's not like upfront over the head political um, it's just a sort of undercurrent to this whole surface of the work and I think that is one of the things that makes Kelly Reichardt really interesting. I mean, we'll get into a variety of reasons and why I think her work is interesting. But she is, uh, I think, one of the more politically engaged independent filmmakers working right now. And is somebody who's like, you know, a, uh, I would say a leftist filmmaker. You know, I think beyond liberal, I think her work or work is very critical of a lot of the structures that exist in our society, and is about people who are suffering uh, because of those structures. And sometimes, you know, these people choose by you know willingly to to try to live outside of mainstream capitalist society, but other times they're pushed out and. Uh, she just is very interested in looking at certain classes and groups of people that I think are very much neglected by other American filmmakers. Or at least if they're looked at, it's like in an insincere way, you know, because movies about often poor people or at least people who are struggling, at least people who are like don't have a certain kind of life. I mean, she talks about her movies being about people that are on different kind of margins. So that's usually like a way people analyze it, which does lend itself to a lot of the people talking about a lot of like the political issues going on in her movies that she chooses to, I guess, like take in a nuanced way with the story she tells or something. Um, but I feel like also sometimes that can maybe neglect other types of conversations about her work. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, no, totally. It is, you know, they are, uh, for the most part, I think movies that have a certain amount of political critique, but I think what, what's also special about her movies is that there is a certain amount of like fluidity to it. 
Like I feel like it's sort of an open-faced object that allows you to engage with it in a variety of different ways. And the movies, I mean, you do have like with something like Wendy and Lucy, there's a very specific emotional effective uh, response. I think that people have to that movie and it's like very uncomfortable and stressful and uh, a, a tough movie to watch, but there is like the way of engaging with her movies through, I think like, um, when, you know, like how it looks at the natural or physical environment or landscape, you know, you can look at her as sort of an ecological filmmaker, or you can analyze her through the sort of lens of slow cinema, um, which I'll probably break down, I think in a little bit. Um, or, you know, or there are different ways. And I think that's one of the things that's special about her movies. is just that like openness. Honestly, like I didn't really think about a different way to approach it until I watched river of grass, which a lot of people credit as being this kind of thing. That's so uncharacteristic of the rest of her work, kind of an outlier. It's her first movie that was made 12 years before she made another feature. Um, but I guess like that movie is very, um, I mean, has a lot of kind of stylistic flourishes that the rest of her movies maybe don't neglect mm -hmm. stylistic flourish, but they're just much more subdued or maybe just quieter and less flashy. Um, but you know, river of grass is like this film where movements or story chapters are punctuated by like numbers on a screen with bullet holes in them and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's it's much more in a clear genre framework than any of her other movies. And I mean, obviously, Meek's Cutoff and First Cow are period pieces and are these, like, sort of westerns. But I also think that, like, the way that they're engaged with genre is not just, like, with the western as a cinematic genre. It's, like, with the western as a genre of history and national identity and not just, like, film genre whereas river of grass is like it's a road movie you know it's a crime movie and it's the like the low budget equivalent of that sort of string of 90s like bonnie and clyde road thrillers like you know uh, true romance natural born killers um california yeah, on the or yeah, uh, on the lower budget end of the spectrum, something like Larry Clark's Another Day in Paradise, you know, stuff like that, which was like such a current at that time. But River of Grass takes it in a very different way. But also, I mean, you mentioned her like westerns, um, which of course kind of like take the western as like a cinematic genre, and and maybe have knowingly different stylistic approaches than the western does because it's communicating ultimately a different message and river of grass is like a little bit like that with taking kind of the bonnie and clyde revival of the 90s but also i mean the movie is one that i feel like takes like badlands as well yeah absolutely and starts to bring that into the picture so it's not just like oh we're retelling bonnie and clyde and it's awesome but I think instead of just like taking Bonnie and Clyde as just like a story like pattern, I think it kind of takes a bit more of like some of the ideas of like the new American film renaissance, but brings that into like an, an updated time period. Mm -hmm. But also to me, that movie fits in like the slacker genre more so than the Bonnie and Clyde genre. Like, you know, movies like slacker, movies like clerks. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is a sort a sort of hybrid of those two tendencies. I think what it takes most from something like Bonnie and Clyde is not you, what everybody I think remembers about a movie like Bonnie and Clyde is more of like the iconicness and the image of it, which is usually what people associate with that movie is like a kind of glamour. You know, Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, obviously like very attractive in that movie. They have sexual chemistry. You know, they're these well-dressed, glamorous criminals. A lot of what's important about Bonnie and Clyde is that like they were photographed and their images were distributed in newspapers. And at least in the way that that movie tells it, they were like aware of their images and manipulating that. And, you know, they were some of the first like criminals as real like media celebrities. Um, So everybody remembers that. But Bonnie and Clyde is ultimately a movie also about impotence and failure and a certain kind of tragedy. And I think that uh, it's not it's very passive in its kind of uh, failure and and impotence. But River of Grass is ultimately about people who fail to be criminals, people who are bad at it. Um, And that's honestly another theme that I think goes along with the slacker tendency you're examining. But also, and, and something that reoccurs throughout her filmography is like people sometimes failing and being bad at things. Or, or if they're not like bad at things on the level of individual responsibility, like the circumstances just make it so they are set up to fail. And I think that kind of goes along with the sort of slacker cinema movement of the 90s where it's like people who are oftentimes opting out in one way or another or sort of resigning themselves to a certain kind of mundanity because they know that there's not a lot of success and promise out there for them. Or in the case of like literally the movie slacker, um, it's like, there is a kind of political dimension to it where it's like all these people in Austin who have some sort of alternative, uh, off the spectrum political ideas. And I think that you see that a little bit in something like Old Joy, which has like left talk radio in it, where it's like these guys have been kind of left behind by just like the current of the Bush years. And so, I mean, similarly with like a movie like Night Moves, again, another more directly politically engaged one where it's like these people are all hardcore environmentalists which is already sort of an unpopular tendency but they're you know they they're taking it to the level of like destructive direct action which is even more unfavorable and outside of what is considered acceptable by mainstream society so i think that there's like a, a kind of duality of slackerism that emerges in her movies where there's like kind of the the failure in you know, not ascribing to like society's conventional standards of success, but then there's also like the sort of choice in not letting your life be dictated by those expectations and trying to exist outside and find some new way to organize society. In old joy. Well, so I, you read a little bit and I, I also read some of the contemporary film directors book about her work and in the close reading on old joy they're talking about how you know both these people are together at like kind of a core moment in their lives um i guess in this point it's just like college and they kind of i guess 
maybe developed like some of their like political thinking that they still keep up with now but i mean it's several years later and a little mm-hmm. bit like Sakakis 7 or return of the Sakakis 7 you have like these people who have all like interpreted this like you know important like paradigm of thought and like political belief in different ways in their lives so mm-hmm. like in Sakakis 7 you have like you know some people who are performing some people who are like working in drug counseling now who the uniting moment in all of their relationship was getting stopped in the town of Secaucus by a police officer and like having a gun in their car and some weed on like a way to a march or an action um but in old joy you have these guys that were friends in college and now are like getting back together and one of them is like married uh has a pretty stable life is like doing like community trainings community classes and woodworking and everything and then Will Oldham's character is this guy who just, like, goes to Burning Man, um, collects these, like, experiences, but is kind of just adrift all the time. And he is at the beginning of the movie and then at the end of the movie as well, just kind of floating through town, going on a hike on a whim. And the whole movie, you're just kind of watching them kind of, like, fail to reconnect. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a fascinating stoner movie I think because they do smoke in it and it's sort of about in the usage of weed I don't know it's like you know it's it's sort of reflexively about um, weeds function as like a social lubricant in awkward situations or in situations where you're like trying to not force but like trigger a certain kind of bonding or emotional honesty and I think you know that like smoking together these yeah bonding through something that's illegal (laughs) exactly (laughs) Uh, and so I think these guys are like you know trying to uh, do it it, it is uh, is going along with the sort of slacker thing it is a little bit of a stoner movie in that way too but in a not but but in a sort of again in a kind of way about failure where it's like the we doesn't really successfully rekindle these guys friendship like it does enables a certain amount of intimacy or honesty but it's not it's not really uh truly deep i think yeah but also that movie's one that was made uh in part because of Kelly Reichert's uh, uh, kind of frustration at the Democratic Party's response to like invading Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and and so it's it's a movie that shows these people on different parts of a leftist spectrum uh, who don't really mesh together, and also both like are commenting on like or maybe not commenting, but making a way where you you may think as you watch it about how ineffectual some of this stuff is and maybe how like masturbatory some of it is uh in terms like political effectiveness and it doesn't really offer like a solution or a counterpoint it's it's kind of just about you sitting there and and thinking about uh i guess political impotence Mm -hmm. and in that way does kind of fall in a little bit with the the slacker paradigm yeah, I mean, I think not to, you know, we, we've been sort of going chronologically a little bit, 
but yeah, obviously, like in its sort of political engagement, I think that Old Joy shares a lot with Night Moves from 2013, um, which is you know her her filmography starts to arc towards movie stardom as. Uh, first cow was a little bit of a step away from it but certain women and and night moves and meeks cut off to an extent you know uh had a lot of very recognizable great like more grade a stars in them um night moves has jesse eisenberg and dakota fanning and uh peter skarsgård but it's you know about i don't I don't know, I feel weird about the word terrorist, but it is about these, you know, environmental activists who take direct action to the extreme and are trying to blow up this dam. But it's all about really the kind of the, the futility of, or not the futility, but whether or not there is sort of futility to that action about, you know, is blowing up dam a one dam just um a statement or some kind of performance or show you know when there are so many dams when there are so many ways that the environment is being destroyed and ruined you, you know what does one thing amount to and so i think it's again it's about it's maybe not totally resigning itself but i think there is something I think a, a lot of kind of the fundamental questions of like just where the left has been in the United States for a long time of sort of wandering in the desert a little bit and wondering like what is the futility of doing anything to a certain extent when the the powers when the powers that you're stacked against are like so powerful and so big and so expansive. I mean, this is like something that characters in the movie directly discuss. Um, in reaction to to this but also it's a movie that's kind of about like the long-term consequences anyway after because i mean about halfway through the movie this bomb they've been building um you know explodes and then you have a whole other half of the movie where you just kind of like see what actually is what is actually created by setting off this bomb Mm -hmm. um and what the aftershocks of that are but Two movies that I did watch around the same time I watched Night Moves that brought out some interesting parallels were the original Godzilla movie, but also Alan J. Pakula's uh, Parallax View, which I think as we're talking about where the, the left has kind of been for a long time, that's a movie that's so deeply conspiratorial and so deeply paranoid. Well, I was going to say, this was something I was thinking about as I was watching Night Moves the other day, but it also, I started thinking about it again as you were just talking. Um, It is actually another one of her movies that does sort of engage with the genre framework because it is basically a paranoid thriller. You know, it's not really a conspiracy movie, but the second half of the movie is all about just this endless loop of looking over your shoulder and looking into the you know the mirror in a store and making sure somebody's not coming to get you uh at which jesse eisenberg in his twitchiness which uh works to great effect in movies like the social network and other movies is maybe less a less desirable affect but here it works to great effect like he's so good at being just a completely utterly uh paranoid and, and he's just totally beset by it mm-hmm. So again, it's kind of another movie about like just it's not just failure, but just sort of like the smallness, I think, of human action sometimes like 
her movies are at one time very big and very small. You know, it's very zeroed in on like a certain person's experience, and it's very. Th her movies are very thorough in detail about the actions that people do, the labor that they undertake, their sort of day-to-day -day experiences. But it's also oftentimes about this feeling of smallness compared to like the vastness of the environment or the natural landscape or like the vastness of the corporate powers that they're sort of stacked against in night moves against the vastness of just like America <laughs> in old joy, you know, Meek's cutoff is about again like that because it's a movie very much in counter to the sort of continuity and clarity and, and mastery and control of the classic Hollywood Western Meek's cutoff is a movie about being fucking lost and just being which like a metaphor I used earlier, just wandering in the desert, like literally that, like it's just a movie about how so much of the experience of the westward migration and expansion and American colonialization was just being fucking lost and just wandering around and having no idea where in the world you were and not knowing, you know, really like what your day to day existence was going to be like. Meeks cut off when. I watched it. Honestly, it like kind of reminded me of like people like Jean-Paul Sartre and like mm -hmm. his play No Exit, you know, very nihilistic philosopher. Um, and that play is just about people for, I guess it's a one act play where it's just three people in a room having a conversation. And that's apparently just what hell is like. It's a version of hell where you're just trapped with other people for the whole time. Uh, and that's kind of what, what Meek's cutoff reminded me of a little bit because it's this movie where you never you never know where they are the entire time that you're yeah. watching it. You're just kind of slowly watching them whittle away person by person, resource by resource as they kind of are lost in the West trying to find, find their way to their destination. Uh, which actually was... One thing I found out about that movie... Well, two things I found out. First of all, the ending of it uh, actually, they ran out of funding, and there was supposed to be a final scene that they didn't film, mm -hmm. and and that shaped the ending and kind of the formless and pithy thing that it ends up kind of ending on as a final note. Uh, but also, it's kind of weird looking into like the careers of Kelly Reichardt and Jonathan Raymond, her frequent collaborator, screenwriter, uh, because. Uh, in the book about her, when they were talking about Meek's cutoff, it mentioned that Jonathan Raymond actually, for a little while, was like working in the Pacific Northwest with like rich developers. To he was working as a writer and researcher to give names to new developments they were creating. And before making Meek's oh, wow. cutoff, he found out about someone whose last name was Meek, who was a settler in that area. And now the legacy of of that person is the name of like a rich development that he picked it for, but then also this other story about them just being lost and this guy being a liar. You're talking. That's kind of crazy. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I feel like that gives a lot of context to specifically Meek's cutoff and first cow, because there are movies about exploration and about settling and giving names, new names to places, you know, not names, you know, <laughs> you have to make sure to point out, you know, not giving names to unnamed places like these places all had names before, but like developers do now, um, these 
white settlers uh, uh, remarket and reshape the land. So it's that, that just adds a lot of con- interesting context. Which first cow kind of like explicitly talks about when there are moments of, you know, the two main characters talking about, you know, there's nothing to do here. This place is on, you know, there's nothing I can do to succeed here. And the other one's like, oh, this place is full of opportunity. What are you talking about? And they're like, oh, well, there's no history here. Or, I don't know, talking about how this this landscape that isn't colonized Mm -hmm. is the exact word for it, but how it's so old and there's no, like, opportunities there because it hasn't been analyzed and kind of taxonomized in that way and assigned these different meanings and worths and values and and verbs you can do with different objects and stuff. Uh, But also one character talks about this landscape saying that actually history is not here yet. Uh, So kind Mm -hmm. of, I guess, talking about the containers uh, within which you think about the history of a place, the names that it has, what those names mean, which I feel like Mm -hmm. you were talking earlier about, you know, her movies being these portraits of people who are trapped or caught within different systems, which to me calls out to like game studies and it kind of brings up to me a parallel with video games where you know you're playing this character but you don't really have any feeling toward it in the same way Kelly Reichert talks about her characters not being people she exactly cares about but people who she doesn't say this but I mean this is me carrying this on but people who ultimately function as demonstrating things like Wendy and Lucy the character of Wendy you know she could be an awful person but the movie isn't about her morality it's about the situation that she is caught in and how one thing snares an entire collapse of like all support that she had yeah I mean like in Night Moves the people are largely anonymous and invisible to us and don't have a lot of interiority beyond like their paranoia Um, what really the movie is interested in I think is their actions and it very much watches and investigates like the tasks that they're doing you know there's an extended sequence of like putting fertilizer in the cement mixer to make a bomb and so a lot of times I I think that the, the parallels of video games is something that I very much detect not just in this sort of desire to fully render a a natural environment and landscape which I think is something that she really does often you know you have like a very just sort of rich sense of being in a place I think Mm -hmm. in her movies even down to her really artificial like sculpting of sound design with like precise mosquito sounds and wind sounds and things like that which a lot of people credit as being natural but it's very artificial yeah, it's a it's a duality because it's like it's so evocative of nature, but it's also so artificially constructed, which I think is very interesting. But her movies are ultimately about tasks, which is something that video games are so often about. I mean, when I saw First Cow, um, I saw it with my girlfriend Charlotte, and we were both just like, "This is Breath of the Wild, basically." You know, you're just like finding resources, combining them together into new things, trading, exploring a little bit, uh, finding things in the environment that you can engage with and access, you know, milking the cow, baking, 
So in the last couple of years, there's this thing that uh, the writer Lewis Gordon like wrote this thing in the outline about. He called this the ambient video game, um, which Breath of the Wild is is kind of within. That one is more about kind of aesthetic presentation rather than like verbs that you have. But also like Minecraft is another one of those type of just like ambient video games, which now has kind of become like the social platform uh, of Fortnite and other battle royale games like we've talked about before. Um, both games like Breath of the Wild and Minecraft, it's a game where it's not just open world, you're going around and you can kind of do all kinds of crazy stuff, but it's also one where the world that you're actually walking on like can serve you. In Minecraft, you're, you know, mining stuff. You know, you can make things directly out of those mm -hmm. materials. Breath of the Wild is one where um, you have to go and kind of farm these resources and and then by combining these resources, you can achieve all kind of weird, kind of systemically created outcomes of creating fire that makes you float up because the the updraft, and then you can fly this way. Whoa. All these different kind of natural elements and interactions uh, shape the way that you interact with that world. Um, I mean, going back to things like Far Cry 2, with your malaria and gun mm -hmm. condition and, and fire and wind and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that Kelly Reichardt's movies, the environment is something that can really be interacted with. And she's very aware of the history of people as they've moved across this country, uh, manipulating the environment. And there's an analog, I think, between that and like her obsessive sort of manipulation of sound. Um, you know, there's a very sort of laid back quality to the image, but like you said, the sound design is very kind of thoroughly processed and, and meticulously edited. Um, and I think that with the sort of idea that you bring up of the ambient video game, there's of course an analog to the idea of slow cinema, um, which is not like the main topic here and we could, you know, kind of talk about it endlessly, I feel like, but I think it's a, you know, it's a movement that her work has been really linked to and is sort of seen, I think, as being kind of the American outpost of. Um, and basically, if I, I think a lot of people listening are probably familiar with slow cinema, but to give sort of a breakdown basically of what it is, I think it's it's generally seen as a sort of kind of development in art cinema from kind of the 80s, 90s, 2000s into today. That's a very, that prior, honestly prioritizes duration above plot, narrative, really anything else. That is sort of, um, that what makes it distinct is that sort of like the slowness of the gaze of the movie. Very long takes, um, editing that is like uh, sort of sparing and and uh, very precise. I don't know, it's sort of a, I think it's, it's uh, it can be a very generalizing tag to associate with a filmmaker because it's, it's applied, to, you know, it's generally thought of, I think people like a pitch upon where Sethical from Thailand or Taiwanese filmmakers like Ho Shao Shin or Eastern European filmmakers like Bellatar. But it is this sort of totalizing, generalizing movement that squashes all of these like different filmmakers and different regional differences together. And really all that unites <laughs> these filmmakers is that they like they aren't American. Yeah, they're not American, and they and they like the camera looks at something for a very long time. I I don't know. What's like very interesting to me is that that slow cinema is generally seen as this kind of 
sometimes orientalizing, sometimes exoticizing way, I think, of looking at a movie. You know, we don't talk about, like, we talk, you know, people talk about, like, chaos cinema or whatever, but we don't say, like, fast cinema uh, for, like, different kinds of movies from different countries that are, like, edited rapidly. Like, it's just kind of, a, sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a limiting way to talk about it. But there is something that's very interesting to me in Kelly Reichardt's movies that it is very, it's very interested in this, like, slowness and is very detached from the normal pace of American film. But it also feels so American in its his, sense of history, its sense of place. You know, you've linked it to slacker movies, and, you know, there's also something, especially in a movie like Old Joy or Wendy and Lucy, a kinship with, like, Mumblecore. But the pacing is just so totally different from those movies. It's just, it feels, she feels a, a part, like, the, like, definitive American independent filmmaker. But she's also kind of working in a medium, in a, in a, in a mode that's very different from any other narrative independent filmmaker. I mean, there's really a... A kind of a strong avant-garde streak to her work, I think, and a kinship with landscape filmmakers like James Benning um, or Peter Hutton, who uh, was a friend and colleague of hers. And the opening shot of First Cow, which is this like shot just of a barge on a river in sort of contemporary times, um, is a reference to his movie At Sea from 2007, which is like this totally silent movie about the life cycle of a barge, um, a container ship. And it's basically about this like container ship going out on its journey. And then it, at some time later, I think it's the same ship. It might be a different ship, but the second half of the movie is like this ship has land, has landed on some beach in some country and people are just like scavenging it and taking it apart. And it's both returning to the environment and that it's like rusting and nature is reclaiming it, but it's also being reclaimed by people and repurposed. And so again, you see this kind of like, there's a way that I feel like nature and the environment is manipulated in these kind of more experimentally minded movies that um, Kelly Reichardt is also doing. I think that just like, the idea of place in, in in her movies takes supremacy over narrative a lot of times. Like, there is a sense of narrative that derives from the actions that people do, but I think a lot of times it's more about the sort of physical space and how people respond to it more than, like, the A to B sort of point of what happens. Yeah, and that's one thing that always kind of reminds me and, and brings me back to video games whenever I watch her movies. Um, you know, you'll be watching something and, and the character will just kind of stand in the frame for a really long period of time where you watch people carry out entire actions, which that's something that, you know, people talk about as positive qualities of a video game where they're like, oh, well, you know, you, you watch this guy go through this full assassination animation and instead of being mad that I'm not interacting with the game for a full five seconds, I think it's awesome because it's fully rendered right in front of me. Like that's, you know, Splinter Cell is a bit of a, a slow video game in that it is all just about mm -hmm. the actions that it takes to change regimes or the action that it takes to assassinate a communist algorithm maker. Shh. 
It's funny that you mentioned Splinter Cell because there was one of those prompts, tweets going around a couple of months ago that was like, oh, what video game would you want, like, a director to adapt and, like, which director? And I said Kelly Reichardt's Metal Gear Solid because it would just be Snake in the Woods, like, doing survivalist shit and just, like, setting up his tent and, like, collecting firewood uh, and sending smoke signals and all that good shit. Stealth games are slow cinema, I think. Yeah, because it is just about the the holistic simulation of a place. You know, in Metal Gear Solid, these people have these routes that they go on. They talk to people if something's wrong. Do they go report to their supervisor? How do they respond to this stuff? Also, mm-hmm. Metal Gear Solid 2, a game that you shoot a cup and the ice cubes melt in less, you know, in a longer amount of time than just like 10 seconds. So people are like, that's so realistic how do they do that mm-hmm. but i mean those type of stealth games are about kind of holistically simulating an environment which back then was kind of done through cinematic type like tricks and animations but now you look to something like the new hitman games and these type of open world stealth games and i think that's a better mm-hmm. a, a further realization of that type of you know holistic world state simulation I mean, I think there's also something like in First Cow specifically about like the increase in lack of interaction with one's own physical environment. You know, you have this movie where these dudes are going to the First Cow in the Northwest Territory, which is owned by this like British trading magistrate or whomever, uh, played by Toby Jones, I think. And so these guys are, you know, going to milk the cow, sneaking onto the property and collecting the milk, then baking pastries and selling them these, these like grease cakes. They reminded me of like funnel cakes from a fair. Yeah, I know. They looked so good. I like really wanted one. I feel like we should do a a segment like, you know, drop it on the Patreon or something where we like make the cakes from First Cow, make edible. Patreon exclusive, tasty video, top down view. Edible oily cakes from First Cow. Oh, God, that gives me a headache. (laughs) I would love to do that, honestly. That would be funny. Lack of interaction. That's what I was talking about with First Cow. It's kind of about, you know, the rise in in fencing, you know, eventually they're found out and a fence is put up around the cow and they can't access that resource anymore. And it's about that sort of like rise in private property, I guess, and that kind of being enshrined in the law and the landscape being sort of parceled up, which is very interesting. What you brought up about, um, gosh, what's his name? Um, Her her screenwriter. Oh, Jonathan Um, Raymond. Jonathan Raymond with the naming and new developments because it feels so entwined with that, with like remaking the land and making it something that's like private and um, individualized, I guess. Yeah. And also, you know, inventing a history for it or maybe um, making more apparent and embellishing this history to add some kind of value to the property that wasn't already there. Or at least wasn't yeah. properly assessed by, like, a land surveyor. Uh, but was intrinsically there in the land, just wasn't monetized yet. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it makes it kind of interesting. You know, we were talking about this a little bit last time, just on a tangent. Went on a rant about this recent Twitter discourse about pirating First Cow. 
I'm just giving this podcast a shelf life. <laughs> yeah, I know. The discourse know. document. Our, our good friend, Eddie, friend of the podcast, Eddie, co-host of Extended Clip, he accidentally started a discourse posting a screenshot of his torrent of First Cow, and some people got upset about it. And it's funny because it's a movie that's about like people who are stealing, you know, because this cow has been in, in, decided that it's the private property of this guy, and eventually they have to flee because of their air quotes crimes. So I don't know. It's just sort of interesting that um, this whole sort of discourse about like access and ownership was sort of triggered by a movie that is about the very same, those very same things. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Forrest Gump mode. You talked about how this movie is a bit about like the, you know, the expansion of capitalism into the West. Also, it's you know about the expansion of the American empire to the Western part. Hey, sorry. Can we actually just pause really quick? Because just a couple minutes ago, I heard a like ring at my doorbell and I don't know what it's about. Yeah, that's fine. Go check. You're good. Yeah, totally. Put a pause on it. this new bookshelf i ordered oh damn how big is it what are we talking um it's like it's like it's not that big it's like four feet high and it's like got six kind of cubes it's to for the living room to put this tv on that we just got and i also like because i kind of redid my whole shelving setup my um books or <laughs> I don't have enough space in my room for my books and the shelf we have another shelf in the living room now and there's not enough space on that shelf for all of my books so I need more space for books and also a place for my blu-rays so hopefully it will suffice I think it will but gotta build that later anyways we can hop back into it I'm still recording you're good honestly I was um, thinking about it I think based off the concept you want for this podcast I think it'll be funny to leave that in there <laughs> Oh, seriously? Yeah. Just some ambient sound? Honestly, maybe so. Yeah. Well, not ambient sound, but just like an interruption in the conversation because of real life. Damn, that would be good. Some reflexivity. Yeah. And then we leave in this explanation of our decision. See, I was thinking about that and I was like, do do we want to leave in an edit of this? uh, A conversation about a conversation, but maybe... Maybe. I mean, we can we can decide to cut it out, but we can also leave it in. That's the thing about other podcasts. Most of the time, they don't acknowledge that they're podcasting because it makes everyone uncomfortable. Yeah, it is weird. Like you know, they just do that sort of thing. 
that we were we were doing at, at the beginning or trying to do where you're just like you open in mid riff zone and try to just like start the f- kind of fly on the wall conversation yeah because podcasting is just about the least natural and most sinful thing you can do but it is sort of interesting to think about like what would a slow cinema podcast be like would it just be like i just real life baby while we're talking i leave my house and like just get some some field recording going in the background as we're talking um i don't know i don't either our original intention with this podcast we sort of both mutually agreed that we wanted it to be a dub podcast and we're sort of only figuring out what that means but it's the most confusing combination of words i can think of yeah but yeah that should be honestly the tag on soundcloud dub podcast dub podcast i wonder if that has been algorithmically created by like a bot account yet that just uploads probably pitch shifted young it's a facebook t-shirt yeah just uploads rips of pissy pamper with 30 seconds of silence beforehand to avoid <laughs> the tag claiming but yeah so expansion of capitalism yeah we talked about how this movie's a bit about uh not just the expansion of the american colonization to the western part of north america uh but also about the moment in which capitalism uh is is starting to get implemented further and further after industrialization and the movie to me like in a lot of the images and things there they feel like very like there's like a depth to a lot of the images in the movie um where it feels like you know it like there's just a very dense foreground Mm -hmm. and background and characters kind of move throughout this kind of very long alley that the camera will shoot and and will interact with things in in interesting ways and it kind of like renders these landscapes into fields of like light and objects and food and natural resources and all of these things that i mean at times the movie doesn't exactly call attention to you don't really know what people are going to do with things but also uh, it, the movie is depicting the moment in which a lot of these items are getting, as we said earlier, taxonomized and are given these prescribed meanings and values. Commodified. Exactly, yeah. And they're being they're given these like potential transformation paths um, because you have these people kind of moving out to this area. And a lot of the depictions of civilization in this movie, these gatherings of people, is essentially just a street of people that have blankets set up where they're selling things that they've made. Mm-hmm. And it kind of depicts the 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 Western like settlement frontier, not as like this place that is being won, but this place where everybody is essentially freelancing and just out there with nothing just trying to make something that people will spend their money on and they're just exchanging the same coins back and forth over and over yeah yeah i mean it's really the frontier gig economy it's just kind of like finding out what the need is and trying to satisfy it you know they realize like oh people want these sort of pastries that they had back home back on the east coast they want that sort of comfort food so let's find a way to fulfill that need you know i imagine that they could have like frontier seamless um and deliver cakes i'm sure that seamless and these like restaurant delivery services that have their fake test kitchens 
where it's like fake restaurants on the app, but they're renting out space from like a closed down restaurant and they just like mm-hmm. fill some need of like vegan food or something. I'm sure they could have a promotional thing in like a big media city where people are going to tweet out screenshots of Seamless. <laughs> Dude, I bet that like the uncut gyms experience that A24, if that if things were normal, I bet they would have sent out like cakes to critics around award season. Yeah, or maybe they fly people out to like the Kanye ranch and everybody or just they're like, has the experience of they they hang out with a cow. Yeah. Or they're like here's here's some here's a jug of milk from the first cow. Uh, please vote for our movie. Yeah. And you talked about uh, how you and your girlfriend said this movie was a lot like Breath of the Wild when you watched it. To me, it, it reminded me a little bit of that, um, but also reminded me of like recently starting up Red Dead Redemption 2 mm-hmm. and how that is this game. These are both kind of, in addition to, I guess Red Dead Redemption 2 is not as much an ambient video game, but both of these are kind of these open world pastoral games where it's not just a really big landscape and you see the mountain and you can go to it but the things you find along the way to the mountain give you purposes or they have purposes that they serve you um, and they give you different benefits or money or things like yeah. that and things kind of happen procedurally as you go um, but both of those games are these games where you can only interact with the environment in very specific encoded ways not just like you know, cultural coding, but also physical co- mm-hmm. or, you know, actual computer coding um, that that change the actual buttons that you're able to press to do things with the other things on your screen. And so to me, it like reminded me of that because it's showing this place as being or now being given these new meanings that weren't there beforehand. Um, mm-hmm. or just being encoded and given these kind of definitive, you know, essentially definitions. Yeah, I think that exactly. I mean, even though like the simple idea of cooking is sort of like creating meaning where there wasn't before combining various substances together to make something new. That's a, like an, it's a really sort of simple and effective metaphor for just commodification. Um, it's and the cake equals money you know it equals coins it equals a transaction and this movie it basically says that like you know where go people like that's like where the marketplace emerges like it just immediately happens like a community exists and um the 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 marketplace is at this point in history just like linked to that there's no really way outside of it once a, a pocket of society settles down and, and starts to and colonizes a place and starts to develop. It's just kind of like the process of of putting up a fence is just like this in this movie is just a sort of like sad resignation at this point where like you sort of know as you're watching that eventually these guys are going to get caught and their access to this milk is going to get cut off and they're going to have to flee to the next community where they can figure out a way to live and i and i don't know that kind of goes along with something that we've been saying about a lot of her movies where there's just this like potent sense of inevitable failure yeah and you talked about in old joy how the friendship in that is kind of they try to rekindle it um with through the activity of like smoking weed 
as this thing that kind of unites them, if anything, in this kind of winking, like, oh, yeah, you're you're cool, you do this, um, mm-hmm. you're down, whatever. But in First Cal, the relationship between the two characters and this friendship honestly reminded me, I was talking to a friend about it who watched it, and she was like, I like didn't really buy the friendship that much. And I was like, yeah, honestly, it reminded me of a lot of like coworker relationships that I've had in the past <laughs> where you're kind of forced into this social social relationship just because you're you have to be there for money um, and you yeah. have to be there for your job, you know, and you're paid to be around each other. And there's an understanding and a respect, but it does have its limits and stuff. And I feel like the, the movie kind of starts to to untangle that a little bit the ways in which like yeah it is about i think the complicated that complicated dynamic yeah well i mean in the movie they're also like relying on each other to survive so but i mean i I, that's not to say that it's a discounted relationship or a bad one it's still you know sweet and has nice moments and stuff but it is it is one that reminded me of those kind of like forced and limited relationships yeah, I think the I think the movie is is kind of about that in a way, you know, about that like negotiating the like um, actual emotional relationship you have with the person, but also the transaction and the sort of like need that they have for each other um, from the from the practical end of things. And I feel like it it um, it sort of examines that tension because you sort of know that these guys are gonna get pulled apart or pushed apart at some point that they're that they kind of that their time together is limited yeah i mean you know that from the beginning it opens up as you said in the modern day and alia shaw mm-hmm. cats walking around with i assume lucy kelly records dog some dog though yeah um and and finds these two bodies in the forest and then that's the only time you see the modern day and then it goes back and tells a story that you know um has some tragic ends like like hamlet like halo reach we start off knowing the tragic ends before we uh we get there but also it's interesting because we're talking about this kind of like this telling of history and keeping of history as this thing that that it's it's something that that started at a certain point and also one that you know is told Mm -hmm. in a specific way when i mean at the end of the movie i was thinking i was like oh i guess you know it did open up with alia shawkat but also like she doesn't know who these people are. Like, probably nobody knows who these people are. Because if, I mean, there's nobody, there's no reason anyone would know who they are except for the fact that probably the cow owner is the person who is remembered. And if anything, yeah, the incident that caused the fence to be brought up is the thing that gets, that gets retold later on. Mm-hmm. Also another thing, uh, when the cow is like brought into the territory though, there's a uh, like people in the town who are talking about this cow and someone's like well there wasn't a cow here before god didn't put a cow here and then somebody compares that to well god didn't put white people here either it kind of talks about that like sculpting and the the motivations to kind of cultivate that but i think it's reflected in the way the cow is actually introduced the cow like floats down this river on this like barge and it's very mm-hmm. like majestic and it feels like like you open a box in Legend of Zelda or like a video game upgrade is just like floating down like mana from heaven or something. Mm-hmm. Achievement unlocked. It's like the supply drop in Fortnite. 
Oh yeah, I'm getting my loadout in COD, you know that. My loadout is just a cow. Did you know that cow actually had had a baby named Cookie? That's cute. It is, yeah. The cow's beautiful, yeah. I'll say that. Yeah, I will say it's a pretty good cow. To be the first cow, especially, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. They got it on the first try. Do you uh, have much more to say about First Cow or the films of Kelly Reichardt? I don't think so. Uh, one thing. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, by golly, I like them. Yeah. They feel good on my brain to watch. Well, some of them do. The other ones oh, don't. Yeah. First Cow did feel good to my brain to watch. I'll say that. One other thing, actually, is the... Uh, the film center in town have, at the beginning of the quarantine, I feel like we talked about this on the podcast before because you were like a correspondent on some of them, but they had these like Zoom yeah. film clubs where you watch a movie on the Criterion thing like once every two weeks and then you get in a Zoom call and they talk about it with like a, like the local alt-weekly writer, editor, whoever they send, and then some kind of other academic usually. Um, and they did one on River of Grass, which mm-hmm. is the occasion that made me watch that. And in addition to having two non-theater representatives there leading the discussion, they also had William Tyler, the musician uh, who who composed the score for this movie. Um, and they had him on there to kind of talk about working with Kelly Reichert. And uh, whenever the conversation got to him, two things I thought were kind of interesting were, first of all, that Kelly Reichardt chose him and A24 tried to discourage the choice because he'd never scored a movie before. Which is kind of weird just because Damn, cold. Even listening to his like non-cinematic music still feels very like cinematic. Absolutely. And very like like it's it's like further illustrating events and things that I'm not seeing or something. Um, but it, it, you know, the music is Soundscapes to scenes. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah, for sure. But also the other thing is that they were like asking him about what it's like to work with her. And he said that she gave him like movies to watch. And I don't remember all of them, but she gave him the Apu trilogy. Saiji Ray. Wow. Yeah. She was like, you got to become a cinephile. Yeah. If you want to be my composer. She's like, there's this moment where this guy strums his string a lot. And it like goes from these leaves to this ripple in the water on a fade. You should. That's like the one this very distinct moment I remember from mm-hmm. uh, Pather Panchali. You gotta be like that, William. Mm-hmm. I think that's what she said. Damn. Yeah. The moments. I think that's the the last thing I have to say about First Cow. Last word on First Cow. First name Cow, last name ever. Yeah. <laughs> you can uh, send us a message if you'd like at uh, our email address hotboxcinema at gmail.com uh, or the hotbox hotline leave us a voicemail 615-592-1003 I just checked no voicemails Same. only email was from a spam person asking to please let, it, let, you pr- let us promote your podcast um so if you're out there, we would like to hear from you. That's my favorite thing about SoundCloud is how few of the accounts belong to people. Yeah, just their, you know, 
there's so many bots. It's just a world of bots. Yeah, I get on there and my notifications are always like, it's always just like this account, like three of your tracks. And then I get on the next time and it's like another, just like number account, liked a bunch of my tracks. Yeah, it's just messages, you know, like, hey, would you like, or would you like to get reposted? on this page that's actually a fascinating sub industry soundcloud repost there are a lot of like legit producers and stuff who pay for who get paid for reposts it's it's interesting there are some people i've followed on twitter over the years that are like if you're a rapper and would like me to promote your track in a tweet this is my paypal is my email let's get it happening maybe we need to start doing that maybe we need to start reposting to the hotbox the cinema page uh, everybody else is on Patreon. We are on SoundCloud reposts exclusively. If you want your podcast to be reposted by us, hit the voicemail. Yeah, hit my Venmo. But yeah, where can people find you on the internet, Nathan? Uh, you can find me at Trillmore Girls. Also, our podcast Twitter at Hotbox Cinema, of course. Yeah, and where can they find you? At ASAP Sunscreen. Both of those are going to be on the podcast Twitter. Um, you know, it's all linked. The Internet of Things. It's inescapable. That's what I learned from Night Moves. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You can never escape. No exit. No exit from this podcast either. Yeah, it's just going to keep going. Yeah. Well, <laughs> until then, keep on token. <laughs>